I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. To be honest, I actually resented kombucha early on because I would have friends come over and they would walk in and the first thing they would say is, dude, what's that smell? On this episode of Unfinished Biz, it's a story like no other. How GT's kombucha came to be with founder and CEO GT Dave himself. GT put kombucha on the map and jump-started what's now a massive beverage category. But it wasn't without some serious drama along the way. FDA recalls anyone? And yet, GT's kombucha is bigger than ever today. We are farmers. So the science behind making kombucha is candidly no different than the science of growing an apple or a tomato. And you have those same risks, right? If you aren't careful with the apple or tomato, you can get somebody sick. Find out how GT took a gamble on his entrepreneurial dreams at a surprisingly young age, why he believes kombucha is so important for health and wellness, and if GT Dave will ever sell his business. Unfinished Biz starts now. Rob, I remember the first time I even heard of kombucha. I mean, it it sounded like this, you know, mysterious, magical thing. <laughs> but um, and come to think of it, it was really around the rise of GT's kombucha. For sure. I mean, I think we have a lot of opportunities to talk to founders who are improving or reinventing or even refreshing a category. It is very rare for us to talk to someone who's actually creating a category, though. But it hasn't come without some dramatic setbacks along the way for him. I mean, public health concerns, scaling issues, and what he says are untruthful competitors. But we had the opportunity to sit down with GT in Los Angeles and hear all about his unique and eclectic rise to success. My entrepreneurial journey has been a long one, um, and it was pretty unexpected. I started when I was 15. I was just a kid. I honestly probably didn't even know the word entrepreneur. But what I did know is that I love to create things that I felt um, gave me a sense of purpose as well as perhaps, as cheesy as it sounds, made the world a better place. And so kombucha came into my life in the early 90s. It was something that my parents were making and drinking and quickly fell in love with. And just being a kid in the household, I observed their consumption behaviors, thought it was very weird, didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> but fast forward two years, um, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. The diagnosis was pretty serious. The doctors gave her a very serious kind of diagnosis of the cancer had already spread. It was in her bones, blah, blah, blah. The good news is after two weeks of tests, they came back and said, Mrs. Dave, um, we want to let you know that we have some pleasantly surprising news that your cancer is mostly precancerous and it has not spread to the lymph nodes. And they said, but we believe you've had this cancer for four years, so we don't understand oh, wow. how it is in this dormant state. And so they just flat out asked her, what are you doing differently in your diet, in your life? Are you taking Chinese herbs, Chinese medicines, anything out of the ordinary? And my mother just candidly responded, well, I'm a vegetarian. I work out a lot. And for the last couple of years, I've been drinking this pungent tasting tea that makes me feel great. And it was after that that the doctor said, well, whatever it is, continue to do it because your situation is miraculous. So again, just to keep you in mind, this is the mid-90s. Right. So there's like no Google. There's barely any internet. Right. You can't really like Google, what is kombucha? And are you 15 or 17 at this time? I'm 15. You're okay. 15 yeah. at this so time. This, yeah. I hadn't even thought of yeah. starting kombucha as an actual business or mm -hmm. even making it myself. 
I was just an observer or even call it a passenger up to that point. And so after the doctors suggested to my mother that this weird tasting tea could have helped her, that's when my parents kind of had a light bulb moment of like, wow, we should probably look into what this you know, pungent tasting tea is. And that's mm-hmm. when they discovered, and they had to go to li- a library, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> there was, again, not Google right. or anything like that. And they uncovered articles, reports, books that literally reference kombucha and its ability to suppress anti- um, excuse me, metabolic diseases. And so that was the moment where we were like, wow, this is something special. How did, just out of curiosity, how did they get into kombucha in the first place? Well, so my parents have always pretty much been on cutting edge. Mm -hmm. So I was a vegetarian in my mother's womb, right? So this day and age, that's nothing interesting or new. But back then it was. Mm -hmm. And so my parents raised me with this strong understanding that food could be your medicine as well as your poison. And they definitely um, threaded into my life all these different unusual foods. So tofu, wheatgrass, chia seeds, noni, fresh pressed juices, you Mm -hmm. name it. Um, And so kombucha, when it came into the household in the early 90s, was presented to my parents by a friend of theirs that was also on a similar path. And his wife had just traveled from the Himalayas, came back with a kombucha culture and a recipe. And she just started touting its benefits. But my parents' friend was very skeptical. Mm -hmm. So he essentially just approached my parents and said, guys, like my wife is raving about this bizarre tea. I don't believe it. I I don't believe that there's anything better than fresh (laughs) pressed juice. So please be my guest. Let me know what you think and if this is legit. And my parents, being very open-minded people, did so. And they quickly fell in love with it. And I observed that for the next two years, how they went from one batch to two batches to five batches to seven batches. I mean, it became a thing in the household. And, you know, to be honest, I actually resented kombucha early on (laughs) because I would have friends come over and they would walk in. And the first thing they would say is, right, dude, what's that smell? What is going on? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, initially I would deny it and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's right. And then eventually I was like, yeah, my parents make this thing. It smells like vinegar. And then people would want to see it. And right. I'd take them into the dining room and there'd be like these seven bowls right. like lined up on a table. And you would oh uncover gosh. the bowls and they would like burp or fart at you. <laughs> so needless to say, kombucha was not right. sexy. Right. Um, it looked like some Breaking Bad episode. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, again, it, it was kind of an odd situation, like something that I really – honestly want nothing to do with became this inspiring moment of it potentially helped my mom and you know my mom's my everything and so it when she was first diagnosed I felt like I had been diagnosed so when we got the good news from the doctors I felt inspired I felt motivated and I I actually went to my parents and I said guys this is something really special and help mom it could potentially help others mm-hmm. and up to that point you know my parents had been making and drinking it for two years and they had turned everybody onto it friends yep. family members right. you name it and i also observed during those two years that the majority of people would come back and be like oh, yeah that was really hard <laughs> like my mother culture didn't have a baby or my baby came right. out moldy right. or blah right. blah blah and so what also dawned on me is that as special as kombucha is it would never go anywhere if the only way that people could consume it, brew it themselves. is to make it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and by the way, these are sophisticated people with like right. resources who are educated right. and they weren't making it. But happen. still a process. Yeah. It's, you know, again, That's here right. in the U.S., we're not very familiar. I mean, this is changing recently. But back then, we're absolutely foreign to anything that's fermented. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we're used to making sure. things, you know, boiling them, baking them, right. all of that. Anything that's fermented, we equate with it's gone bad. Right. 
Right. And honestly, when I started making kombucha, that was the first reaction that I'd get from people. They'd, I'd go to stores and I would sample. And they'd be like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I think this has gone bad. I think it's rancid. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people would literally right. lean over into my ear and like, I don't want to embarrass you, but I think all oh, this is bad. So, so what <laughs> – out of curiosity, what was the elevator pitch then? Because it was so different and it, it was, was so novel. So how would you actually even tr- introduce it to people? Well, keep in mind, again, this is the mid-90s. So you didn't have Whole Foods. Right. Yeah. So the opportunity was very, very limited. And the opportunities that did exist were primarily the very, very hardcore health food stores here in Los Angeles. So there's one now that most people know about these days. So they've actually expanded and they have multiple locations, but it's called Air, Air One. Yeah. Yeah. And it's on Beverly Boulevard yeah. in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And it was the store that my parents would take me to as a kid. And that's where we would buy all our vegetarian stuff and whatever. So when I was ready to start making it and bottling it, naturally, Air One was the first place that I had approached. And I just walked in. First of all, I called them and I said, hey, what do I need to do to sell you guys a product? And they're like, well, you need a bottle, a label, and a company address. And I was like, is that it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. (laughs) So again, keep in mind, I had no idea about the law and health department licenses and all that stuff. So I essentially just came prepared with that. I had a physical bottle Uh with a physical label and a physical address, which by the way was a P.O. box. And I walked into Air One and I said, hey, I make this thing called kombucha. It's very healthy and I make the best tasting, freshest kombucha possible and I'd like to sell it in your store. And what year was this and how long was it after your your mother's um, uh, diagnosis? diagnosis? Yeah. yeah. So my mother was diagnosed um, in the summertime of 1994. Okay. And I started bot- – I bottled my first kombucha in 1995 in February. And still in high school at the time. Well, so that's the other part that's really interesting. So – you know, the, the universe works in mysterious ways, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So in 1994, I was in high school. I was going to Beverly Hills High. Yeah. I was just, put it bluntly, I was failing every class, <laughs> ditching every class. I was on the Drew Barrymore program, which is basically <laughs> like cocaine at the age of 12. And um, so I wasn't going anywhere. And mm-hmm. I actually had a meeting with my college counselor who sat me down and basically gave me a rude awakening. She said, sweetheart, you're not going anywhere. Like, just... If your dreams are doctor, lawyer, you better lower that bar to something a little bit more pedestrian. Uh-huh. And I was like, how can that be? You know, I blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yeah, your grades are pathetic. So that was when I had my aha moment of I am not being nurtured or encouraged to be educated and do something with my life in the environment of Beverly Hills High, mm-hmm. right? There's these rich kids that, you know, most of them will just inherit their family trust, their family company, whatever. My father's an attorney, not going to happen. You mm-hmm. don't inherit an attorney's law firm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I actually took my GED. First of all, I asked my parents' permission, which I was half serious, half joking when I asked. <laughs> Fully prepared for them to be like, right. fuck off. Yeah. yeah. Um, go to your room. Yeah. But instead, my father said, you know, I think that's a wonderful, brilliant idea. He said, there are many world leaders like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates that realized at a young age that they were on a different path and school and, and the typical conventional kind of ac- academic system was not required. And he goes, if you believe that you meet that description, you have my blessing. And I was like, all right. You're like, so, that's you're a like, relative. Done. Yeah. <laughs> that's a low bar. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I was like, yes. Yeah, exactly. So I took my GED. I left high school. And by the way, I was now prepared to go to Santa Monica City College. Mm-hmm. I had this whole path ahead of me of like, I know what I'm going to do. But then when kombucha happened, I thought, all right, well, this is something very special. I can rather go to City College and not do kombucha or I cannot go to City, city College 
and do kombucha. And worst case scenario, it fails. I have a lot of lessons that I learned. Right. I go back to school. I'm still ahead of my peers because I was technically two years ahead of everybody. Mm-hmm. And all is good. That's right. So I was able to just jump into it with literally zero risk Mm -hmm. and a a, a sense of fearlessness. And that's what I did. Well, walk us through. So now you have a bottle, you have a product, (laughs) you have a label, and you have an address. Yes. Where do you go from there? So I walk into Air One and I pitch them. Yeah. And I got, within five minutes, a yes. What's your price? A yes. When can you deliver? Tomorrow? A yes. That's it. How did you even answer the price question? Well, so what I did is I said I want to retail it at four ninety nine a bottle. Okay, right? Why did you choose that? Well, because Red Bull was in the market at that time, okay. so Red Bull started to set this premium price. Same with Starbucks, so that yep. uh, you know around five dollars for call it sixteen ounces was mm-hmm. not unheard of, especially for something that's premium. Mm-hmm. So I just essentially went to them. I said I would like to retail for four ninety nine. They said, all right, well we need to buy it for three seventy five. So they were very transparent about yeah. their margins. There uh-huh. was no number games or anything like that. And so I delivered the next day, and the rest is history. And what was the what did they ask you? Well, what do you call this? And what's your brand? Did they ask you that, or no. did you come in yeah. and name it? Like how? Well, how first of all, all, I had yeah. zero brand at that point, yeah. right? And so in did the you just health- write kombucha on there. <laughs> well, I designed a label on my dad's computer. It was yeah. a black and white label. It originally just said kombucha, uh-huh. and then right before I was to hit print and send it over to the label printing company, yep. my mother came to me and she said, "Sweetheart." That's way too generic. You have to personalize it. And I'm like, Mom. She's like, you should put your name on it. <laughs> and I was like, really? And she's like, yes. And by the way, I hated my name growing up. Like GT is not like a catchy name. You did know, you always go, did by, you go GT? by GT? I yeah. always went by GT. Okay. Yeah, I was named – I was – Born with the name George Thomas, mm-hmm. and Dave is my last name. Yeah. And then like five minutes after I was born, my parents looked at me and they're like, yeah, it's not really a great name. <laughs> so they're like, how about GT? Oh. Um, and so GT is what I was named, again, yeah. ever since that moment. And it was hard growing up because there was ET, there was GTE, there was all these weird um, initials yeah. that right. were similar to mine. So I didn't enjoy it, and so I was reluctant to put my name on the label. But I did. Mm-hmm. And I'm no joke, it was about like – like a millimeter big. It yeah. looked like like a, a, a printing mistake right. on the label because that's how modest I was. Yeah. And so that essentially was my brand. And the other thing is back in the day in the natural food world, they weren't into brands. Right. They actually were turned off to brands. Like they wanted things that look like they came from your kitchen. Mm-hmm. So good, because mine good, actually did. Good thing right. it yeah. did. <laughs> right. You know, actually I, your dining room, right? You it said. was my dining room and my kitchen <laughs> and my garage and my, my living room. Yeah. So, you know, little by little I took over the entire house. But yeah, so that's why it wasn't, there was no red flags when I walked into Air One. I, I looked like something else that they would carry. And so that's why I just got a bunch of yeses and I delivered the next day. And, you know, again, it wasn't like a slam dunk overnight. There was definitely um, an uphill education process. And we were able to do that. We, I say myself and my mother, because my mother would go to Air One and she would set up a sampling table and she would give out samples. And my mother's an incredible woman. She's inspiring and she's um, hopeful and she's loving and she just people are just drawn to her. So mm-hmm. when she would sample, not only were people just drawn to her energy, but also she would share her story. And that's really what made people like gravitate to kombucha. Yep. But it didn't end there. I mean, what also would help and candidly, this is the secret of our su- success today is the consumer actually felt something. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's when I knew that I was on the right path. Because I, we would get this feedback, whether it was people calling the consumer hotline, which was no joke, an answer machine in my bedroom, <laughs> and say, hey, so I was at the local health food store and I was looking at the shelves and you know, I saw this weird bottle. It looked different. I bought it. I tasted it. It tasted different. 
But I want to let you know, I feel good. My headache went away. My stomach ache went away. I had I was tired. Now I have energy or whatever. And this was like unsolicited positive feedback. And that's when I knew I'm onto something good. Because if I can make something that makes me feel happy and then also makes people happy who consume it, it's a win-win. For sure. And that was it. And that's when I knew that the future likely would be very bright. How long were you in the one store? I was in Air One exclusively probably for about six to nine months. Okay. And then I expanded to Co-Opportunity, which is a health food store in Santa Monica, and then One Life in Venice. And again, keep in mind, in the mid-90s, health food was very, very narrow. Like the health food stores were like one out of a, a hundred maybe. Right. right. And so – but there was Mrs. Gucci's, which was a chain of stores here in Los Angeles. Mrs. Gucci's, in addition to Air One, was known as like the creme de la creme. But they were corporate. And so I remember submitting my – you had to submit to them like via mail or something. Mm-hmm. So I submitted my product to them. This was probably after like month 13 or 15. And I got back like, a, yeah, thank you for sub- sub- submitting your product, but we're not interested. Have a nice day. And I was like, that's so weird. Did they even not even try it? But again, Mrs. Gucci's was a little bit more traditional that's in right. their approach. So I think kombucha at the time was too far out for them. And then Whole Foods acquired Mrs. Gucci's. So this is now – I'm sorry to skip around, but we're like in the no. late 90s. 90, mm-hmm. yep. And fortunately, I was able to sell my product to every single health food store in the city besides Mrs. Gucci's, which then eventually became Whole Foods. And so after doing that and really creating a fanatic fan base, yep. believe it or not, Whole Foods called me. And they said, hey, sorry, so guys. we hear you make a product called kombucha. A lot of our customers are coming in and they want us to carry it. We would like to put it on our shelves. And I was like, it's about time. <laughs> and and, and then they, the SoCal region. This is SoCal region. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so then Whole Foods also said, and this was a big pivotal moment for me, and they said, but we would like to buy it through our distributor. Uh-huh. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> and they're like, a distributor. You mean I, I bring it to your store? Yeah, yeah, I'm exactly. like, I'm that too. Exactly. Yeah. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Like a distributor is another company that buys it from you and they sell it to us. And I was like, that sounds bizarre. <laughs> and so initially I completely rejected right. the concept because right. once I modeled out that idea, I saw that my 375 became like, 250 right Right. because now the middleman had to get their markup Mm -hmm. and so again i was very reluctant to accept this until you know i had a conversation with the distributor as well as others and they said hey so this is how it works you just focus on being a manufacturer and we'll handle the rest so at this point in time did you have people did you have a team were you were there were you still in your house yeah how did this It, it actually worked out nicely that by the time whole foods came calling, I had just moved into my commercial facility. So okay. I was making kombucha out of my parents' kitchen for the first two years. So call it 95 to 97. Right. Whole Foods came calling around 98. So I had just renovated the commercial facility that I got in Gardena. Uh-huh. And um, it was perfect because now I was ready because the distributor wanted to pick up. Right. And how are they going to pick up from my house in Bel Air, right? That right. would have been a little fishy. <laughs> a little fishy, yeah. <laughs> so it worked out. And yeah. I was in Whole Foods – Again, I wasn't in Whole Foods every store overnight. It was just because I was through a distributor, I still had to sell it in to each store. So I'd go and some stores were like, no, thanks. Tastes like piss. Or some people were like, yeah, it's a little weird, but kind of reminds me of apple cider vinegar. So yeah, I'll give it a try. And then I had to sample the hell out of it. And that's what I did. And by the way, you asked me if I had a team. It was called me. (laughs) And your mom. Uh, yeah. No? I mean, my mom would help sample okay. for sure. Yeah. And that was huge. I can't discredit that. I mean, again, she was in many ways the face of the brand in and her then, story. And then were you in the Guardian plant making the kombucha too? Yes. 
Wow, damn. Yeah, I was That's a one GT Dave? Yeah, it was a one man show. Fortunately, probably about six months after moving into my commercial facility, I got my first employee and then my second and my third and so forth. But again, I ran my company very much like an overprotected parent, yep. which was a blessing and a curse. So the blessing was is I was super conservative, I was super call it cautiously optimistic uh-huh. about where I was going and, and the risk and, and all that stuff. And I also was really trying to like coddle the brand and I yeah. really didn't want it to get, you know, grow up too fast as they say. Um, so that's like the good thing. It protected me from call it major mistakes. The downside, if you want to call it that is it just really slowed my growth. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't, or call it from 95 to maybe like 2000 or even 2002. I was pretty much still just a Southern California, maybe, total California brand, right? Yep. which is unheard of these days. I mean, right. people yeah. have an idea and even before they have the product, they're <laughs> nationwide. It's bizarre. Right. And then what, and then when did it start expanding outside of California? So I would say probably in like 2001, 2002 is when through distributor relationships, I was able to go from California to California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, and then to the Northwest and to the Rockies mm-hmm. and, and little by little. And I'd say, um, at 2005, prior to 2005, I was my product was available west of the Mississippi, and then call it 2005, 2006, I was nationwide. But a big moment had to happen for me to get there. Um, one is because kombucha is more like a form of agriculture than it is like a soda or it's something. It's very like craft. Yep. It's very craft, and it requires square footage. So yeah. the analogy I always use of who we are at GT's Living Foods is we're more farmers than anything. So to scale your production, you need essentially more land. So that 2,000-square-foot facility in Gardena needed to become 4,000, and then 6,000, and then 8,000. So I was in an industrial complex back in Gardena, and each unit was 2,000 square feet. <laughs> so I'd punch a hole in the wall, and I'd take over the next unit. Right. I'd punch a hole in the wall, and it right. takes over the next unit. And so that's how I grew and scaled. But when it was time to go nationwide in 2005, I had already kind of exhausted all the opportunities within that facility, that industrial complex. So that's when I had that big choice to, like, I need to move out and get, like, a bigger facility and all of that. So out of curiosity, as you were organically scaling, um, where did you did you ever take on capital? Like where did the where did the cash come from? Did, did the business kind of fund itself? Yes, I mean that's the, the blessing of being a one man show. Yeah. Is you and certainly making out of your parents' kitchen, <laughs> you have no overhead, right? Yep. I had no right. rent. Yep. I you know my parents were essentially paying for me because I was still their child. So every single dime just got saved. Right. And, you know, I would use it to reinvest into the company, whether that was eventually buying a delivery van or other stuff. But to answer your question about ever taking money, I've only taken money once. And that was from my mom. She gave me (laughs) $10,000 because I was at this point of scaling, Mm -hmm. but I actually wasn't making a lot of profit because a lot of our production was manual. Meaning like we were hand labeling bottles and all of that. Got it. And so my mom could see the stress that I was going through. And she said, sweetheart, I'm going to give you some money to buy a labeler because you need that push. And she did. And I immediately went back into the green Mm -hmm. and paid her back within like six or nine months. And that was my first and only investment. And there's rumors that there's a Catterton. Yeah. investment in, in in GTs. Yeah, well, that's one of the rumors. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other rumor is there's a Coke investment and a Pepsi investment and a Nestle investment. So, I mean... So you, none, you none of those one. none of those are true? None of them are true. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing... So, I mean, I think that's one of the most amazing stories in that, you know, that we really want entrepreneurs to hear today is that there's, there's, there's just this 
thought process now in the natural food and beverage industry that you got to raise millions and millions of dollars to start a company. And it's great to hear stories like like GT's um, and, and Halo Top and others that basically raise – and RX Bar that have raised very little money to become you know national brands that have really changed lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, it's a slippery slope when you take money, right? Mm-hmm. It can be a great thing if you've really mapped out your – future and you have the roadmap and everything is very calculated but also very conservative Mm -hmm. and you use that money almost like a reserve that you cautiously draw from but if you don't do that and candidly i don't think most brands and entrepreneurs do they all of a sudden it's like this pot of gold right and they're just like i need to go big and i'm gonna hire this giant sales team and i'm gonna have this brilliant marketing plan i'm gonna have all this premium packaging and blah 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 and then they realize like they skipped several steps Mm -hmm. and they used all that money i mean juicero is an example um of too much is not good Mm -hmm. and it can it could encourage reckless behavior um kind of inappropriate behavior and so i think that's one of the things that has saved me to be honest is that i was always on this razor's edge of like hey, if I make this choice and if I move too quickly, it could be detrimental. I didn't have that safety net that a lot of times brands that take money feel that they have. So they are a little maybe falsely brave at times. So where the way I describe myself, especially when I started, was, again, cautiously optimistic, if not right. borderline cynical. Well, that's interesting because I think obviously you're an entrepreneur, uh, but you characterize yourself as being kind of conservative is that has that been sort of an interesting conflict in yourself that you've had to kind of wrestle figure with? out yeah yeah absolutely i mean i definitely i mean i always com- uh, describe myself as a a very and this is not myself bragging but a nice balance between the artist and the businessman mm-hmm. right so the artist is fearless um risk-taking likes to color outside the lines likes to be provocative and controversial and an anomaly and all of that and then the businessman is like risk (laughs) you know is this going to be mainstream profitability all that stuff and so so the artist in me would still take chances i mean obviously starting a business based on this thing called kombucha that nobody had heard about and nobody had even consumed anything like it is risk-taking sure but i did it in a very conservative way where i just started with made it out of my parents kitchen i started with one store it's not like i the next day i'm like i'm gonna get this giant facility and and make a ton of this stuff so that's where kind of the optimistic and somewhat uh cautious qualities of mary but one of the dynamics too about kombucha that makes it unique you didn't mention scientist and you know how have you dealt with i mean we only know enough about kombucha to be to be dangerous we're not an expert like you but you know how do you deal with a, a an industry that's craft in nature but the product just continuously changes, and if it doesn't change, it's almost – it's not real kombucha. How do you deal with fermentation and alcohol and sugar and yeah. – how do you deal with all that being an artist and business person but not necessarily a scientist? Well, here's the thing. So I, I do not make kombucha. GT's Living Foods does not make kombucha. Nature makes kombucha. So just like I said earlier, we are farmers. So – the science behind making kombucha is candidly no different than the science of growing an apple or mm-hmm. a tomato. And you have those same risks, right? If you aren't careful with the apple or tomato, you can get somebody sick and that's it. And yep. so with kombucha, the good news is it's actually incredibly safe compared to agriculture and products that contain animal products and animal byproducts because it has a 
low pH, which means it's per FDA a non-potentially hazardous food. So that means E. coli, salmonella, and things of that nature can't exist in kombucha. So it's incredibly resilient. So now you reference something of alcohol and sugar. Well, again, you know, we at GTs are essentially servants to nature. So we allow nature to run its course. And what we do is we set up a processes and protocol that allow us to achieve what we believe is a standard result. But at the end of the day, just like everything in nature, there's variations. Right. And so we always share that with people is that and the day I started, I mean, I talked about trace amounts of alcohol and, and things of that nature and sugar is a fermenting agent versus a sweetener. So there's an educational process that needs to happen. Do you think there needs to be more, more defined regulation around kombucha so that um – so it's almost it's such a it's such a unique category that there's there's not there's no standard there's of identity. No, that's right. Yeah, and so that's actually something that we're actively working on um, because again, for better or for worse, not only are we the category leader, but we are the category creator. So I started kombucha as I said because it was a personal passion of mine, and I really wanted to see it do good in the world. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age, and when something becomes popular trendy and certainly lucrative a very litigious mm-hmm. category right now well, lit- well litigious in anything right now yeah. it's doing well and somewhat new that's right but kombucha is no exception and so what happens is is that you slowly experience what i call the bastardization right of a category mm-hmm. and so i mean there's so many examples of that you can use craft beer you can use the pressed juice you can use the coconut water i mean you can look at so many things that once started as these special authentic handcrafted health products that their purpose was to be healthy and not recreational and not cute or trendy or whatever but little by little they become trendy and mainstream and in the process of doing that if certain companies are reckless or they're more intoxicated with the profit they start to cut corners Mm -hmm. and then you start to have this bastardization so going back to your question kombucha currently does not have a standard of identity but it needs one and in my opinion that standard of identity needs to involve tea, a fermenting agent, and an actual kombucha, scoby, or culture that together they are fermented. Because in this day and age, and that's no longer happening with some of these newer, bigger brands. I was going to say, do you believe that some of the brands out there that are calling themselves kombucha are not kombucha? Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't believe. I know. I mean, you have, for instance, and I'm not here to throw shade, yeah. but there are brands out there. Some of them have transacted already and some are looking to transact where they're saying, hey, how can I standardize this? How can I make it virtually unchangeable in the market? Just like you referenced, you know, kombucha, authentic kombucha is a living thing and you can't control That's right. a living thing. Like it, the you know, analogy we use is like a banana that bruises. Bruises are not wanted, but they're part of the characteristic of a fresh banana. Right. If you have a banana that doesn't bruise, is it a plastic banana? <laughs> you know, but, but it's in edu- same in kombucha. But in educating c- consumers and entrepreneurs, when when there's other folks that are calling their products kombucha, what are they actually doing that that's that's not natural? Like just in, in quick summary, oh, sure. um, just for folks. Okay. To well, understand. first of all, so at GTS, we ferment our kombucha for thirty days. So there are some brands that ferment theirs for a day. And they're actually not even making a kombucha. They're making a vinegar. So they make this like hyper sour, hyper vinegary ingredient. Then they take a bottle that has water, tea flavoring, maybe some juice and other fun stuff. And they, you know, they fairy dust like an ounce of that vinegar, artificially carbonate it, throw in some probiotics, maybe some malic acid or something like that to give it a little bit more body Mm -hmm. and call it a day. That's not kombucha. 
And and there's evidence of that. Like what we believe is that, again, whether you drink my brand or another brand, the consumer needs to know that there should be a checklist of how to verify if your kombucha is legit. So one is, is it naturally effervescent or is it artificially carbonated? Right. Um, are, did you actually ferment it with a real SCOBY? Is it pasteurized in any way? Is it denatured in any way? Is it stripped after the fermentation, which some brands are doing now where they like to remove the alcohol as well as the organic acids to create the smooth flavor profile? Well, what you end up with is just a tea. Right. And then the final thing, which is the most important and it's somewhat controversial, is does your bottle form a culture in it? If it doesn't, it's probably not alive. And maybe not even be kombucha, maybe just sparkling water. So here's the thing. That's fine right? if the consumer knows that's what they're buying. So like the example I give is orange juice, right? You have fresh orange juice, fresh right. squeezed. You have flash pasteurized. You have from concentrate. And then you have an orange-flavored beverage like a Minute Maid. All those products explicitly say how they're made and what's in them. So the consumer says, I'm going to spend $5 for the fresh press. I'm going to spend $0.99 cents for the orange-flavored. That's right. Right? So right now in the kombucha space – they all look the same. They're all priced the same. And they all say kombucha and on them. They all them. say kombucha and they all use the words like live and handcrafted right. and other BS like that. When yep. some of these guys are making kombucha in like 50,000 gallon tanks, like there is not a hand touching anything except perhaps like a button That's to right. move it from <laughs> one tank to another. So it's absurd. But again, it's currently not regulated. I mean, because the FDA only really steps in when two things happen. One is there's severe public safety or public risk, or there's money in the form of lobbyists being pumped into that category, which right now you're seeing that in the dairy world, right? Dairy all of a sudden woke up and said, hey, we don't like that other people are using the word milk. Mm -hmm. So we're going to change that. So again, that's when you get the FDA's attention. So I think it's about time that not only do we educate the consumer, but we try to get a little bit of call it guidelines or guardrails of what really is raw, authentic kombucha. So where's where's the company in ten years from now? What what do you, what's your vision? So my vision really got solidified at the beginning of 2017, and so two things happened. One is I took ayahuasca, which is a like South American medicine that you take, and it has this mind expanding experience where you kind of ground yourself. First of all, you peel away all your BS, which honestly I feel that, especially here in Los Angeles, we accumulate a lot of BS. (laughs) (laughs) And it strips you of all of that and it kind of grounds you with what I believe is our original purpose. And so through my ayahuasca experience, it told me that I'm basically a servant leader and that I'm here to serve. And through that, I I came to the realization that my company and my products are essentially a platform or a conduit for the greater good. And so I quickly renamed my company GT's Living Foods. Also, also what I realize is that my company, like many, um, when you start to grow, you, you arrive at a very delicate place where you don't – you could so quickly screw it up, meaning like you lose your identity. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you stand for. And so by renaming the company GT's Living Foods, that became our north star of who we are and what we stand for. So you asked me what will the company be in the next five or ten years. And in my opinion, I feel like we're just getting started. And I feel like kombucha is one of the many beautiful things that this world needs and that the public needs and people need in their bodies, but it's not the only thing. And so after renaming the company, we started to expand into other fermented living categories. So we launched a fermented coconut water called Coco Kefir. Um, We took the fresh, young, raw meat from these 
coconuts from Thailand that we're literally cracking ourselves. Right. And we make a raw coconut yogurt called Coco Yo. Um, last year, we launched Alive, which is an adaptogenic tea. So we use these beautiful fruit and body medicinal mushrooms that we extract all their nutrients over the course of a nine-hour slow process. And then we add raw apple cider vinegar and probiotics and premium tea and other things. Because again, I feel that there are some people out there that want a kombucha but aren't able to deal with some of its polarizing qualities. Right. And so Alive is the answer to that. In my opinion, Alive, which is the adaptogenic tea, gives people options. Um, and then from there, we're launching Dreamcatcher, which will be out at the beginning of next year. It's a CBD uh, sparkling water. Um, and then we have a couple other things in the mix. You're going to wait till after the farm bill passes or will you just go right out there? Uh, you know, I think right now you have to be cautious with where you go and how you go. So I, I think with CBD, it's no exception. And then lastly, would you – do you see? Would you ever sell yourself to a company like a Coke or Pepsi? I wouldn't sell my company to another company just for money, um, because to be honest, like I've made enough money, I've made money more money than I've ever imagined, and I'm not the type of guy that gets off on materialistic things. In fact, I think money can make you quite miserable. So I'm quite happy right now. Um, so I would never sell my company purely for profit or an exit strategy. I would only potentially sell my company or part better yet partner with another company if I was at a place where I could say with confidence and say it consistently that I am at my limit. Like I cannot grow this brand or take it to the level that it needs to go on my own. So I rather A, need to hand it over to somebody, which in many ways I describe as watching your child get married, right. right? You want to see them get married to somebody that's responsible and kind mm-hmm. and successful and perhaps they'll have a great life together. Um, <laughs> or you get married, meaning right. like I get married with somebody and together we partner and we raise this child together. So it's A or B. You know, the, I think the thing that – two things that keeps me kind of honest here is one is, as I said earlier, not to sound like a broken record, I get started out of a personal passion and the things that I do even to this day have to – creatively fulfill me and if they don't i'm not interested so that can keeps me on a certain path the other which is quite obvious is my name is on the label (laughs) so like i would very much struggle with going to somebody and saying yeah so i am gt no i no longer the company yeah that wasn't my decision to put it in plastic (laughs) and pasteurize it and add natural flavoring and blah 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 like i honestly rather take my life yeah and so that's also keeping me off that path is that I just feel like your name's on the door. Yeah, my name is on the label. Out so. of curiosity, would you would you have knowing what you know now? Would you have wanted your name on the actual label? Yes, I think honestly, I mean that's how wonderful my mother is. She's so incredibly wise, and I didn't know it at the time, but my mother knew that I always put myself in everything that I do. I don't half-ass anything; it's all or nothing, and so. You know, I think having – there are brands that have their name on the label or someone's name on it and it's just like just because, right? right? But the products we make at GT's – A reflection of you. As close as you can get yeah. to the DNA of a human being in a product. I mean the look, the touch, the feel, the taste, the expression, all of that mm-hmm. is me. Um, and again, that's it's a, it's a serious thing. For sure. <laughs> Right after the break, we'll be back with our guest, GT's Kombucha founder and CEO, George Thomas Dave. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can find us at unfinishedbiz.com and on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Can they really? I mean, maybe. 
Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. Have feedback for us? Leave us a review. Five stars. And now, let's get back to our episode with GT Dave himself, founder and CEO of GT's Kombucha. All right, so question that we like to ask, has there been a bet the company moment in GT Dave's uh, existence here? There definitely has. And honestly, there's been several. Um, but the one that I would say was probably the most memorable because it was early on and, it, and my company was at an incredibly delicate stage is back in 2005 when it was time for me to leave that Gardena facility, mm-hmm. which collectively was 8,000 square feet, to move into a 50,000 square foot facility. Oh, wow. And, you know, Gardena, not to disparage it, but it's, it's, it's essentially very close to where the LA riots were. So <laughs> it's not like a beautiful neighborhood. And the... 50,000 square foot facility was in this beautiful building. It was brand new. I honestly didn't feel that I was worthy to be in it. (laughs) Um, And I was scared because, again, it was a big financial responsibility. I mean, the the rent was ridiculous. And I contemplated it. I mean, it took about three months for me to ultimately make that decision. But to be honest, what really pushed me in the right direction, and this is going to sound super silly, but there was a psychic that I met. And she, without even knowing me, told me that I was contemplating something very serious. And I told her about the building. She says, bring me the soil. And I was like, you mean the dirt? (laughs) 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 And she's like, yes, bring me the the soil of the building. And I was like, okay. So I went and grabbed the soil. I had not signed the lease, of course. And I brought it to her and she put it in her hand. She goes, this building will bring you success beyond your wildest dreams. And... It will be too small. And I was like, all right, that's weird. And so I had this now confidence yeah. to sign the lease and that's what I did. But it was frightening even up to the point where, you know, I got the, the, the keys. It was very stressful. I got to meet, I got to meet this. I, I was yeah. literally yeah. the same thing. I know. I got, I got She's some, incredible. I yeah. got some soil to bring her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I have some questions. Yeah. Did it turn out to be too small of a facility? Yes, it absolutely did. And so, I mean, we have seven locations yeah. now. Because as I described earlier, kombucha is a lot like a form of agriculture. You need more land. And so, you know, we were in that facility from, and we're still in it. It's still one of our seven. Yeah. From 2005 to about 2012. And then, the, believe it or not, there was a twin facility right across from the parking lot. So it was almost like a campus format. Did you go back to the psychic for each, each of the new locations? <laughs> no, so here's or? the thing. I am so embarrassed to admit this. Yeah. I lost contact with her. And I have like she's, racked she's my a key brain. Part of the journey. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If she's listening. Mary, please call me. Um, <laughs> wait, you should call us first. But yeah, <laughs> we want to ask her. Hey, before we make any investments, exactly. Tell us she, what's. Tell, please tell us what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And she's brilliant. It'd be awesome. If she's like, bring me the contract, yeah. and I'll mark it up. For you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, an amazing journey. Yes. Is there a particular high point that stands out? I mean, there's always certain degrees of high point, you know, I mean, having my first bottle on the shelves of Air One was a surreal moment. I mean, I remember standing there for probably like 30 minutes, just staring at the shelf, watching the labels glisten off of the lights, watch people come and go and pick up a bottle and put it back or buy it or whatever. So that was surreal. Um, I think seeing it in, in New York was surreal. I think seeing it at a Costco was surreal. I mean, there's all these moments, right? You know, being here is kind of surreal. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just I'm one of those types of people that like I find um, beauty in the little steps. So everything really excites me. And you know, as we've discussed, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. Is there a particular low point 
that stands out? Um, That's an easier question to answer. (laughs) So there's many low points. (laughs) Right. But I would say the largest to date was um, probably in 2010. And that's when I got the fateful phone call from a very large retailer. And the product was pulled, right? Yeah. It was June of 2010 where I was notified that there was a concern that kombucha may have alcohol. And, you know, naturally I was like, duh, it's on the label. And they're like, yeah, but we think this could be a problem. And, you know, long story short, I wasn't given many options. It was basically strong-armed of this is a problem. We don't want to deal with it. Our lawyers are involved. We're taking it off our shelves. And I was like, I've been making this for 15 years now. This is by no means an overnight success. This is not like this untested product. This is people have been drinking it religiously. It's gotten more and more popular. The feedback has become more and more incredible. Like, can we like talk about this? And I'm like, yeah, no, we don't have time. We're doing it this week. And it was, you know, this may sound like an, an exaggeration, but it was like the 9-11 of my career and certainly of making kombucha is that it was like overnight silence. Did you actually think that there was an, a, a scenario out there where you could lose it all? Oh, for sure. I thought I didn't think I was going to lose it all, um, but I thought I was done because what I was being told at the time was – and this was the hardest pill to swallow, yeah. which is, hey, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is illegal and what you're doing is hurting people. And I was like, I, I don't understand. Like I've, It's the opposite it's of what the you're doing. It's the opposite of yeah. what and I but, wanted to do, what I believed I was doing and what people are telling me doing. So right. it's just it, – it was very hard to understand. Um and so it was it, – and, and by the way, my product was off the shelf for three months. Right. So how did you weather that? <laughs> um, there was many ways that I weathered it. I would say the primary thing that kept me going is first of all, counting my blessings. Mm-hmm. What I said to myself literally the day of product being taken off the shelf is I said to myself, you know what? I never thought I was going to get this far. So if this is it, mm-hmm. I did better than what I was expecting to do. And that was it. And the second thing was I built a nice life for myself. I will weather the storm personally and financially. I will be okay. But then the third and most important thing that honestly kept me strong, kept me confident, and allowed me to persevere was when fans would reach out to, to us, whether it was the consumer relations telephone number or back then you know, it was just Facebook. And they'd say, we don't care about alcohol. We drink this product. We know it's fermented. It says that it may contain alcohol on the label. We drink it for different reasons. So go ahead, make us get carded. Go ahead, make this sold in a liquor store. We will go wherever we need to. And that was a very defining moment, not only for me personally, my company and my brand, but also for the market. That's right. Because I honestly cannot use an example of another category or another product that can be off the shelves for three months and the consumers don't move on. Mm-hmm. And everybody, including these major retailers, are like, oh, this, you're done. Like, this is good. Like, you're you're over. Game over. And they try to force things into that gaping hole at the refrigerator, right. whether it was coconut water, whether it was fresh pressed juice, whether it was whatever, you know, other stuff out there. And people are like, yeah, no thanks. We'll wait. And so that gave me the confidence and reiterated and reminded me that what I was doing was genuinely helping people and that they connected with it on their own. And so when we came back three months later, two things happened. One, I was super brave. Second of all, the world is a very different place because, you know, prior to that, 
these large retailers, you know, this is, again, 2010. So you didn't have traditional grocery stores buying and selling kombucha. You had a very small marketplace. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it was somewhat controversial to jump from the natural category to conventional. conventional. And you were almost like shamed if you did. And what happened was it, it kind of gave me the permission to go wherever I wanted to because you know, this retailer That's kind true. of, you know, as they say, threw Force the first punch. Yeah. 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 And I was like, all right, well, if you don't, maybe others will. Right. And long story short, everybody came back. And the category got stronger because even people who didn't know about kombucha heard about it now because of all this controversy. And it really, really catapulted us to a better place. And in addition to that, it kind of corrected the market. Like you were seeing a lot of these weird brands coming out and the quality wasn't very good. Yeah, flushed them out. Yeah, a lot of them didn't survive. And so it really kind of, as I said, do a correction. That's interesting. So at this point in time, what's keeping you up at night? Well, I am my own worst critic, right? So... Do you have two hours? Um, (laughs) I mean, to summarize it, I think what keeps me up at night is the concern that I'm not being my best. And what I mean by that is, you know, I I do set a very high standard for myself and a very high standard for my brand and the people that I work with and all of that. And I'm the type of guy that, again, 100 things can be going on, 99 of them absolutely perfect or even beyond expectations. But it's the one thing that's not is the only thing I focus on. So what keeps me up at night, it varies. But again, it really is like me reflecting of like, really, did I say what I meant? Did I do what I said? Did I make them feel great? Did I try my hardest? And I think right now what's a challenge is as any brand and any company grows, there's a lot. And, you know, you walk this fine line between still becoming, still being an entrepreneurial focused company or just being a corporation. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to have both, right? You need to have the discipline and sophistication of certain corporate behavior. So you mitigate risk and you are buttoned up and you have processes and blah, blah, blah. But you still want to be agile and you still want to be somewhat fearless. And so, you know, I feel at times there's still a, a tug of war going on with those two things. So that's kind of what I wrestle with in my mind every night. Wayne, you don't know what ayahuasca is, right? I definitely don't. Um, I, when he brought that up, I honestly just started nodding and just pretending that I knew. And uh-huh. we'll just add this to the list of, of things I learned from this show, who Cardi B is, what a meme is. <laughs> and then, so what is ayahuasca? I mean, that, honestly, that one's, uh, that one's probably too hard for me to, to describe. It's probably something you got to experience for yourself. <laughs> Well, speaking of experience, I mean, I, we need to track down Mary the psychic. For I sure. mean, if we're going to be the best investors in the space, we need a psychic to tell us whether investments are going to be good or not. Uh-huh. In all seriousness, it's interesting that he didn't really answer the question about whether he'll sell the company. No, he didn't. But in any case, it seems like the company's made him a pretty happy person nevertheless. And it's not surprising at all that he's the happiest when he's in one of the world's most beautiful places. I typically like to be in absolute, raw, unadulterated nature. And so my favorite place to go in the world is the island of Kauai, Hawaii. And I say that because you know a lot of people think of Hawaii as this like touristy yeah. place. But the people who think that clearly have not been to Kauai. Kauai. So it's where they filmed Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. Tropic Thunder, King Kong. You know, What's all your this, spot like, there? So Secret Beach. So Secret Beach, which is on the north shore of Kauai. I actually own property there now. And – 
Um, on the Princeville side, right? Yeah. 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 And so it started, my love affair with Kauai started in 2011, where I went there for the first time. And I hiked the Nepali coast. And I just had this moment of absolute inspiration. There's, I believe firmly that nature is by far the most brilliant artist out there. And if you want to emulate anything in this world, you need to emulate nature. And so that's where, honestly, I find my inspiration, my creativity, my grounding, my center. And then I come back to L.A. must admit I'm a little depressed because being in the city is nothing <laughs> like being in the Kauai coastline. Yeah. But um, I come back happier and more inspired and ready to do more work. Well, it's time for our signature game, GT Dave. It's a big day for I know you accomplished a lot, but this this might be it. It's playing <laughs> this playing this take game. Down? <laughs> this game. So sixty seconds. It's a rapid fire game. So first thing that comes to your head, just just say it. Okay. Cat person or dog person? Cat. West Coast or East Coast? West. What's your go to alcoholic beverage? Our classic gold kombucha. Favorite sports team? Dodgers. Biggest pet peeve? Um when I have to ask for things more than once. Favorite superhero? I would say Batman. Most influential person in your life? My mother. One place you want to travel right now other than Kauai? Uh, South Africa. If you could trade lives with one person in the world for a day, who would it be? Do they have to be, still be alive? No. No? Um, Steve Jobs. Biggest fear? Not being my best. Favorite book? The Great Gatsby. Most embarrassing moment. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> um I did a drag performance in St. Bart's. That was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> what are you most proud of? Other than the drag performance, obviously. Um I'm most proud of my relationship with my mom. If you have access to a time machine, what one event or period of time would you travel to? In my life? Or in time in machine, any man. History? Time machine. You can go anywhere. Um, you know, honestly, I would like to, I mean, it, this is kind of a vague answer, but I'd like to go back to when like the pyramids were built or Stonehenge. Cause I have a curiosity of how back then did we have the technology to build those things? So last question on unfinished bids, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Well, that's an easy one and it is keep it simple. Do what you love and make sure what you're doing is helping people. Because I believe if you follow those three simple principles, all good will come. It's people that chase profit, chase fame, follow and lead with their ego that more often than not, they sabotage themselves. And it's a, it's a bittersweet ending. That's great advice. Well, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Wayne. And I'm Robin. We'll be back on the next episode with Josh Tetrick, co-founder and CEO of Just, formerly Hampton Creek, which strives to bring healthier and more affordable food to people all over the world. But this won't be a Cinderella story. In fact, between lawsuits and allegations, the Just story is almost too wild to be true. Almost. A change.org petition started encouraging thousands of people to get in touch with Unilever to ask them to drop the lawsuit. Unilever's Facebook accounts um, for about 30 days or so were fairly locked up uh, because people who support our mission and, and, and the good behind it were posting, hey, can you back off of this company? That's next time on Unfinished Biz. 
Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.